you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke, and uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 3. We're going to do a little bit of backtracking today. What we're doing is we're looking at the beauty of who Jesus is. We've called our sermon series The Incomparable Jesus. Jesus, there's nobody like him. Why can I come up here this morning and encourage you that your hope is not in a political party? Is because Jesus is so much better than any political party or political running person. And I'm going to ask this every week, but I'm going to ask you the question again is, who do you think of Jesus when you think of Jesus? What do you think about him? How do you understand who Jesus is? Because how you answer that question, if I just say to you, who is Jesus, you might say, he's a really good guy. He was a great philosopher. He was a a holy prophet, even other religions recognize him as a holy prophet. Or maybe he was insane, he was crazy, he was always going around telling everybody, hey, you know I'm God, right? I don't know, but however you answer that question of who is Jesus will determine how you live your life. If Jesus is just a really nice guy, which we saw last week is not really a really nice guy, then you'll kind of live your life as like, I can kind of do whatever I want, and Jesus will just winky-winky at my sin, turn a blind eye, there, there, it's okay, I know life's hard, just do your best and believe in yourself, and Oprah will, and all of these things, Disney theology, and you'll just kind of live your life like that, putting all your hope in yourself. If Jesus is this mean, always cranky, he's a God who's always looking down on you, ready to squash you for anything you've done wrong, then you're going to live your life in fear, always walking around, tippy-toeing, saying, oh my gosh, I think I messed up, so I can never get in God's good graces again because he's so grumpy, he's like a mean ogre. But what we have to do is take the whole width of Scripture and see from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. It's the story of God. It's not really the story of us. We think the Bible is about us sometimes and we get that wrong because our default goes that way. No, really, what we, when we look at Scripture, we see it's all about Jesus and how does our life fit into the truth of who Jesus is. And if I understand and see and know Jesus rightly, then I will make decisions in my life that will be rightly templated against the, 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 the person of Christ. And so we're going to unpackage that more this morning. So uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 3. I already told you that. And we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. Now, before we read in here, let me give us a little bit of backstory. There's a guy named John. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you called him John the Baptist. If you grew up in the church later, you called him John the Baptizer, uh, all those kind of things. Because, uh, you know, the, old, the, the later we go in church, the less we like titles, right? This is why I say, hey, just call me Kelly, you know. Yes, I'm a pastor, but, you know, my name's Kelly. I don't call you Plumber Joe, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so we see this guy named John, and he is, you'll, you, we can go back to the beginning of the gospel where, where an angel comes to his parents and say, hey, you're going you're gonna to have a baby in your old age, and his, his dad's name was Zachariah. And his mom's name was Elizabeth, and she was this older lady, and she gets pregnant uh, by the power of God and, and fills her womb. And was it something happening? Oh, something flying around in here? Okay. Um, and, so, and so you see God's favor on this man named John in the womb. Uh, you hear the announcement of, of Christ, and in the womb, John leaps, it says, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit as a baby. I don't understand how that works, but it, the Holy Spirit comes upon 
John, even in utero, and, and there's this anointing on John. And the Bible says that John was probably one of the greatest men that had ever lived in the Bible. Crazy. And, and you'll see in other accounts of the gospel, he was kind of this really intense dude. I mean, he lived out in the wilderness. He wore like Frank, uh, um, Flintstones kind of outfits. He wore camel hair. You know, he looked like Fred Flintstone. And, and, and then he ate bugs and honey. I mean, just not the kind of guy you invite to your get to family get-togethers because he's always going to make it awkward. And here he is. He is on fire for God. God's anointed him since he was a baby. He comes out. He's just rejoicing. And he is a fiery preacher. And people are in droves coming to John. And this is what we see here. Let's pick up in verse 7 of chapter 3. This is what the Word of the Lord says. We're going to read to verse 10. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. So John's just laying it on these people. I mean, he says, you brood of vipers. And a lot of the commentaries would say, what he's telling people is, you're like snakes hiding in holes, and the flood is coming, and you're slithering out of these holes because the water's being filled up. He said, you're just like these evil little snakes hiding. Anybody... Like, kind of like to be told stuff like that? He's hardcore. He says this in verse 10. So the crowds respond. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? If we are all in big trouble, as you say, John, what in the world can we do to save ourselves? What in the world is our hope? We have no hope. You're telling us that we, we can't even put our hope in our, in our, our, our religion uh, heritage. We have Abraham. Abraham is the founder of our faith. He's, he's a, a descendant of us. We're a direct line of Abraham. We've always put our hope in that because look at the good stock we come from. And now you're telling us that won't even save us, that we're like brood of vipers? What then shall we do? See, here's the truth about who John was. John was the first prophet to come along in about 400 years. Imagine that you grew up in a very religious society that trusted God. And you, all the time, whenever your family or your friends got together, you told stories about the greatness of God coming and doing wonders and miracles among you, and particularly through prophets. Prophets would speak to your faith and tell you, this is what God is telling you. This is what God's telling you to do. This is what God is telling you not to do. And if you're obedient to God, when the, when the word of the Lord comes, you will be blessed and you will prosper. And so Israel has been gone through about 400 years now of no prophet speaking to them. And they've been waiting, and they're longing 
For this, what has been prophesied as the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the one that will come and rescue them and save them. And so lo and behold, John comes on the scene. He's a little bit wacky, a little crazy. He's gathering all the crowds. He's preaching a message of repentance. People's lives are being changed. And they think, who is this guy? This must be the break that we've been waiting for. This must be what we've been anticipated. The prophets of old told us that there will be a Messiah. I bet you this is the dude. I mean, just look at him. He looks weird, right? He's quirky. They were coming out in droves because it seemed like John was the answer to their silence. And I don't know if you've ever read this before and thought to yourself, man, this could have been John's moment, right? I mean, he could have been like, all right, Zebedee, and uh, I'm trying to think of some like biblical Old Testament names, uh, Isaiah and Johannes, and uh, that's not really, that's more German, I don't know. But all right, guys, here's some t-shirts with my face on them, all right? And it's going to say, repent, and I'm going to look angry, it's going to be like, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and man, sell them for like 10 shekels, okay? 10 shekels. That's a lot, John. No, no, no. People, trust me, the people are going to buy them. I mean, we're, we're going through like hotcakes. And then uh, I heard so-and-so down at the temple is asking for me. And, you know, man, this could be my moment. And how does John reply to what then shall we do? John, you're telling us that we need to repent. You're telling us that we're sinful. You're telling us that our hope cannot be in this lineage that we've been putting our hope in for all this time. What shall we do? And John's like, mm, not me, somebody else. Wait a minute. You're telling me you seem like the guy, but there's somebody else that's coming? Let's continue looking here. Look at verses 11 through 16. We're back up to 10. They said, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he says in verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, what are we shall, what, what shall, and we, sorry, I got to read that again. Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John says this, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. So let me, let me just stop there for a second. What shall we do, John? And John talks about these acts of physical repentance. He says, hey, you got to be good. You can't be bad, basically is what he's saying. You're doing naughty stuff, shenanigans over here. Stop your shenanigans. Okay. Is that it? No, that's not it. John says in verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than me, than I, is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is John's moment. 
to kind of put himself in the spotlight. He can continue to go on baptizing his baptism of repentance. He can continue going on and preaching and saying, hey, if you live like this, don't live like this. If you're this kind of person, stop doing this. And if you're this kind of person, start doing this. And this will fix all your problems. No, see, all John can do is basically give them outward trappings to be able to try to make their hearts feel better. But he knows that there is one coming who is better than him. And that is who? That is Jesus. And so we're asking this question, who is Jesus? Well, incomparably, Jesus is mightier. Jesus is better. Jesus is far more able to take away the sins of the world. We would see here in John's Gospel that as Christ is walking up, John the baptizer says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, in this moment where religion could have been the answer, what John does rightly is he points to Jesus and says, Jesus is mightier than me. Jesus is mightier than my outward baptism. Jesus is mightier than, I'm telling you, if you've got two tunics, then give one away. That's all good. But Jesus is so much better. And then he says something like this. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, let's, let me give you some context of what this is like. Back in the day, everybody wore sandals. And they didn't wear socks with sandals like weird, some weird people wear socks with sandals. We're not talking about that kind of stuff, right? Um, like Tevas with socks. I'm not, we're not talking about that. They didn't have socks back then. So what they would do is they would have leather straps. And, and the kind of area that they would walk around in was not pristine. They didn't have paved sidewalks. See, they would walk on the roads where people from their windows would throw out their trash, would throw out their bathroom stuff. You know what I'm talking about? They would walk on roads that had all kinds of animal feces and urine, and, and, and then that would become muddy and dirty and dusty and all of those things. And it was not even a, 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 a master's disciple wouldn't even be considered lowly enough to untie their master's sandals. It would be the lowliest of the lowliest of slaves that when you would come into the house, it was the lowliest servant in that home that would come before you and before you entered the rest of your house would untie your sandals. Why? Because it was disgusting. It was nasty. How many of you already don't like feet? Okay. There's y'all, some of you are lying. My son, my son, if I'm on the couch laying next to him and my feet are exposed, he doesn't want to get in like three feet of me. And my feet are beautiful. Okay. They're pretty well taken care of. I'm one of those metros that like I look at my feet and go, no, 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 you got to clip them talons. That is nasty. Like, if there's any brown underneath your toenails, that ain't, that ain't, ain't going to handle it. You're welcome, babe. See? But this is not just, I don't like feet. This is, that is absolutely disgusting. And in a Jewish culture, it would be considered unclean and not in the, obvi- not in the obvious term, but in the sense of a righteous term. You don't touch someone's feet because it was considered to be righteously unclean. We were in Thailand, and we were taught, okay, when you're sitting around a table of food, particularly in a village area setting, you'll often be sitting low on the floor, 
and the food will be up on the table. And it's very offensive and rude to point your, to cross your foot, your leg like this and to show the bottom of your foot because it's considered disgusting. And, and what you're doing is you're, you're, you're showing um, dishonor to the person next to you because the feet are lowly and the feet are what collect the dirt and they walk on all the nasty stuff. And it's the same here. And John the Baptist, being one of the greatest men who's ever lived, having a baptism of repentance, preaching the Word of God, people ask, John, what in the world then shall we do? And John says, no, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And He's coming and He's worthy and He's mightier than me. And He's someone who I wouldn't even be worthy to be the lowest slave or servant to serve Him. And I would ask you the question this morning, what do you think about Jesus? Is He mightier than your own ability to make your life competent? Is He mightier than your ability to work hard at your job? Is He mightier than your own ability to get yourself out of a situation that you got in trouble? And you think to yourself, your first go-to is to say, what do I need to do? I know I am guilty of that. When a circumstance comes, I lay in bed and I think, okay, here's the problem. How do I fix it? Why do I do that? It's because somehow... In my crazy mind, I think I'm the answer to my problems. (laughs) And I have to ask myself, who is Jesus? Is he mightier than me? Yes. Why don't I just go to Jesus? Because my lying, deceitful, arrogant heart says, Kelly, you can get yourself out of this. Now, I'm not telling us just sit back at home, watch TV all day, and be like, God's got it. No, he's called us to be responsible. But do we understand that Jesus is mightier? Behold the Lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world. You can't be victorious over your own sin and your own power. Only Jesus can do that. Then you see it again. He says in Luke eleven sixteen, he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is what is he talking about here? Well, not only is Jesus mightier than John and his his ways and our own arrogance that says we can get ourselves out of this and we can make right the things that we've done wrong. Jesus is mightier than that. Jesus is also the one who purifies. Jesus is the one who purifies. We see this. His, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here's the, here's the situation. John's baptism is one of water and repentance only, right? John says, okay, you must be baptized. But John knows that all he's doing is fixing a temporary and an outward problem. John knows when he says there's one who's coming who is mightier than me, He knows that in his baptism, it's only a precursor. 
as the Bible says, one who's a voice in the wilderness shouting out for the one to come, speaking of Jesus. John knows his anointing is just to get people's hearts ready for the inside stuff that's going to happen. And he says, not only is Jesus mightier than me, he's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does that mean by he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire? That means when the Holy Spirit comes through the person of Jesus Christ, through salvation, the Holy Spirit is going to do something not just to the outside of you. He's going to do something to the inside of you that you can't do on your own. So this is why we say Christianity is not necessarily something you do. Christianity is something that's been done to you. When you say, I, I'm saved, it's not because you saved yourself and you got yourself all cleaned up on the outside and then God looked at you and you go, whoa, you really got all the grease off your elbows and you really like brushed your teeth really well and now you're presentable to be able to come into my kingdom. No, see, the way salvation works through the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that in spite of all the grease and our messy, stinky dragon breath and all of the boogies in our eyes, all of that stuff... The Holy Spirit comes in, and he sees, and he goes, all right, it's not about the outside. Remember how the Pharisees were all concerned about the cup and the plate and the inside of it was dirty? He goes, it's about the inside. And the only thing that can change you and me on the inside is what? It's the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the only thing. See, our hearts, the Bible says, are dead in trespasses before God comes. They're dead. It's like a stalled engine in a car. You've heard me tell you this. If you were to go to a, a pick-apart place and look for an engine, and what you would try to turn it off, it, would just, it wouldn't even click. It would just make no noise. Why? Because it is dead in the water. But the Holy Spirit comes like a divine mechanic, and he doesn't worry about the paint that's scratched on the outside. What he says is, says, in order for this car to actually run, it needs a whole brand new engine. It needs the vows to be worked and replaced and like all the little, all, I don't know all the words, so don't, I'm not a mechanic. It needs new spark plugs. It needs new wiring. It needs new oil. It needs all of the things, right? And that is the only hope that this car will ever have to ever run again is a whole complete brand new engine. And the Holy Spirit comes and it says, yeah, I understand you're concerned about all the outside stuff. But Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God then. And so what I'm going to do is what needs to be done first. I'm going to come and I'm going to bring this dead heart to life. And where you've been trying on the outside, you know you ever go to a used car salesman lot and they have that one car that they advertise and it looks so amazing. They got it all polished up and it's like at a really good price to get you in the door and all you bought was a really good-looking junk car because they know the engine of it is wrong, bad. And we do that. We put our hope in it. But Jesus comes, and he comes with an anointing and with a baptism that is better than the outside stuff that we all take pride in. What he does is he comes, and he says, no, Holy, Jesus is going to come with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to change you from the inside out. Not only that is the Holy Spirit going to come with regeneration, but Jesus is going to come with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to come with a baptism that is with fire. <laughs> I'm going to get Pentecost on you. Fire. Everybody say fire. fire. All right. He's going to come with fire. 
Now this fire does two things. If you're a believer here this morning, the fire is good. The fire is this refining. This fire, because we, that's what it is. You see the context here. The fire of the, of the baptism of Jesus comes, and it, what it does is it burns away all the junk. It burns away all the external trappings. It burns away all the things we put our hope in. And it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes. Have you, ever, have you ever spent time in God's presence? Can you leave unchanged when you're in God's presence? No, you can't. Why? Because when God's presence comes upon you, if it's a genuine encounter with God, the Holy Spirit always says, hey, 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 I want to like push you this way. Hey, 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 this, this area of sin, I'm speaking to you. I'm refining you because I want you to all your cylinders to run really well. I got to burn out some of that carbon that's building up that you're allowing in your heart. The Holy Spirit comes and he says, all right, I'm going to pour my fire out on you. And, you know, sometimes the church hears fire and they think, oh, that's going to be all the goosebumps I feel when I'm in church. Woo, and I'm going to run around like crazy. No, the, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit is to purify us from the inside out. Are there feelings that come with that? Yes, thank God for his presence. Thank God for an encounter. And that can cause us to do things that may seem a little uncomfortable and we, we, we respond to God and his leading the Holy Spirit and it's radical at times. But the context here is Jesus, when he says, when Jesus comes, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's a purifying for us who are believers. Now the other side of the coin is for those who are not believers, the fire of the Holy Spirit is judgment. Let's, let's, let's look at it. It says this in verse 17. Where am I in my Bible? It says, his winnowing fork. So what's a winnowing fork? A winnowing fork was like a pitchfork. It was made out of wood. You know, like uh, Beauty and the Beast, right? When they're all like, kill the beast! And all the mob gets together and they got pitchforks and torches. That's a winnowing fork, okay? It says his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So this is how this would work. People would go out into the fields. They would harvest wheat. They would lay it on the floor. They would trample it, and they would, they would uh, separate the, the, the wheat from the stems, and then it would be, it'd be laying all over the floor, and it would be in a place where they knew that the wind could get a cross breeze through this place where they would, on the threshing floor. And the farmer would take his winnowing fork, and on a windy day, once the kernels had been already separated from the stems, they would wait for the wind, and they would grab it, and they would throw it up in the air. And lo and behold, what would it do? It would be like panning for gold. We told this, and the wind would come, and then the wheat would fall, and the chaff, the husk, the shell of the wheat would fly away because it was light and it didn't have any substance or nutrients, but the wheat would fall to the ground. And when John says Jesus is coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, this fire is not just refining for us as believers, it's judgment for the unbelievers. If you find yourself in an unrepentant state, if you find yourself loving your sin or pounding your fist at God and saying, I can't believe in a God who would, you know in your heart that you are in rebellion. See, that's a sign of that. And what the Bible says that God is going to do with you is you will be like chaff that is thrown in the wind, and the wind will take it, 
and ultimately that chaff will be burned up. It's good news for the believer, not so good news for the unbeliever. And if you find yourself with an unbelieving heart this morning, the the really good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is even though you are maybe in this moment unrepentant, God in his grace is offering you forgiveness. All you have to do is repent and say, Lord, I want to put my trust in you, my hope in you. And you therefore will not experience the burning, quenching fire of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to take our hearts of stone and turn it into flesh. You guys doing okay? All right. A lot of stuff in this. So Luke eleven seventeen gives us a, a last picture here that we need to see Jesus. Not only is Jesus greater and mightier, not only does Jesus purify, but Jesus judges. It says this. Uh, did I already read this? Yeah, his winnowing fork. Like, I already read that. But Jesus is the judge, and so I'm not going to take any more time on it. All right, let's move on. Last portion, Luke eleven twenty one through 22. And if you haven't been tracking with this so far, I'm going to ask you the obvious question. But let's read it first. It says this. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, so Jesus has come to John as he's baptizing here in the river. Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. The heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, from the Father, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here we see Jesus being baptized. I sat with some of my kids last night, and they were all like, what? I said, guys, why did Jesus get baptized? And they were like, ugh. (laughs) And they... They all came to one conclusion, which I think is right. But often we read over this and we go, oh, wait, yeah, Jesus was baptized. Wait a minute. If Jesus didn't have sin, the reason why you and I, when we put our hope in Christ, we're baptized is because we're saying we're turning away from our sinful life, right? We're repenting of our sinful nature. We're repenting of a sinful life. And what we're doing is when we go under the water, we're saying that's like our old sin. It's like an old man, the dead, and we're killing it. We're burying it. But then when we come out of the water, what we're saying is, no, the new man is coming to life. It's a new creation. But Jesus didn't have sin, so why does he need to be baptized? And I think we need to ask this question. We can't just look over this portion of Scripture and go, who is Jesus? He's all of these things, and why did Jesus get baptized? I don't know. Here's some things I think point us to why Jesus was baptized. Number one, why was Jesus baptized? It was the confirmation of the true identity of Jesus being the Son of God. You see here where the Father's voice says, uh, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. See, this is a confirmation of whether you thought Jesus was just a really nice guy, whether you thought Jesus was just a nice philosopher, whether you think he's grumpy, whether all of these things, wherever you are in the mix, God the Father does not allow us to mistake the identity of the second personhood of the Trinity in that Jesus is the Son of God, being fully man and fully God. And so in this moment, we have a picture of the Trinity all working together for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all in harmony and in unity. 
speaking over and, and being pleased with the sonhood of God. So I think that's one reason. Uh, number two, I think we see that Jesus is validating the ministry of repentance. So John is baptizing people into repentance, and I think Jesus is saying, hey, this is valid. This is good to repent from your sin. This is good. You need to do this. And I'm going to do it too to show you that this is good. So he's doing it to validate John's ministry of repentance. Number three, it was his inauguration as the Messiah. The hope of the world. So here in this moment we have John saying, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And you see the Trinity all in working and, and God pouring out his, his favor. And it's this inauguration. It's almost like Frozen, the first one, Frozen, where it's like, Inauguration Day! Woo! Hey! Right? He's saying this is... See, John was saying, there's one who's coming who's mightier than me, and then all of a sudden, boom, here's the mightier one that you've been waiting for. Hey, Israel, 400 years of silence, that ends now. Because Jesus has come. You know what I love about this, too? Jesus doesn't get inaugurated in some fancy temple, right? If it's inauguration day and you're going to be the king, where's it going to happen? In the castle. Around all the really dignified people, Right? around all the people who wear really big hats, around all the people who brushed their teeth really well and cleaned up really well, and wearing all the fancy clothes, and those poor little imps out there, those little peons, they don't get to see what's happening in here because this is for the real dignified people. No. See, Jesus' inauguration is around who? All these sinners, all the Gentiles, all the people who are saying, whatever shall we do? That's, I love that about our Jesus. Number four, and this is what my kids said, is that Jesus is being baptized because it's an example for us to get baptized. Here's what I think is the most important, though. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 3, 15, Jesus says this, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So why does Jesus say that? John, Jesus comes to John and says, hey, John, baptize me. And John's like, uh, me? Baptize you? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I'm not going to baptize you, right? We would all do the same thing if Jesus said, hey, pray for me. You're like, pray, pray. wait a minute. Jesus, you should be praying for me, your God and all. Remember, you know, that's how this works. Jesus says, no. See, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean? See, I believe, and I think I think it's right, a lot of the commentators I was reading, I was, I was like, Lord, what does this mean? In this moment, what Jesus is doing is he's publicly saying, I submit to the will of my Father. I am putting myself, even though I am fully God, I am not grasping for Godhood, as the epistles let us know. He didn't consider it equality, he didn't grasp for equality with God. What he did is he emptied himself of those things. He didn't cease to be God, but he emptied himself on the, in, the, in, the, in the sense of like, I'm aloof now. I don't be able to relate to you. Know, see, what Jesus does in this moment, he says, Father, I submit my life to you so that all righteousness may be fulfilled. And I think, friends, that this is the beginning of what we see consummated on the cross. Jesus is inaugurated as the Messiah, and as the Messiah says, I'm here to take away the sins of the world. 
The only way that's going to be happening is if I am fully obedient to the Father. Even when in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father tells me, here's the cup of my wrath. And, I, and you might say to me, Father, is there any other way? And I, as the Father, will tell you, Son, there is no other way. And as the Son responds and says, not my will then, yours be done. See, Jesus in this moment saying, I baptize myself because what I'm doing is I'm surrendering myself to God as a sacrificial lamb for the world. And that's what you and I are doing when we're baptized. We're celebrating in that Gethsemane, in that cross moment where Jesus hung there and said, it is finished. What kind of Jesus, what kind of God is Jesus? Well, who is Jesus? And you answer that question, he was a, the one who was baptized. Why is that important? Because in baptism, he's saying, I'm surrendering my life to the will of the Father. I'm surrendering my life to the will of the Father so much that it will lead me to a place called Skull Hill where I will be beaten and whipped and put crowns of thorns on me. A spear will pierce my side. Nails will be in my feet and my hands. And I will die. And the weight of the world's sin will be upon my shoulder. And I will say one last phrase to make it all all fixed, all in one moment, it'll all be placed on me, and I will say, it is finished. Every sin that you or me have ever committed, are committing now, or ever will be committed, was placed on Christ at the cross, and the wrath of God, as we sang this morning, the just, God the just, his wrath was satisfied, because why? Jesus was baptized and said, Lord, Father, I will do whatever you call me to do, even if that means me going to a hill with two disgusting, unworthy thieves dying right beside me. If I'm being tortured, I want my wife, I want my kids right next to me, holding my hand. Jesus lets go of all of that. And imagine the one making fun of him you want to die? You want to be tortured while somebody's making fun of you? No. Jesus went through it all for you and me. Let's stand this morning.